Hello, this is Dennis Sarah from Evil Podcast. And like you, I'm listening to Pleasing Terrors with Mike Brown. Enjoy. Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 24 the devil inside. There are some places that are burdened with such a terrible history that they never escape. Places where the violence and cruelty of the past have cast a shadow that lingers for generations. Even when there is nothing left of what once stood there, the shadow remains. Like an architectural ghost, these buildings can leave an imprint, not in the soil, but in the minds of the local residents. If you visit 1400 East Passayunk Avenue in South Philadelphia, you will find a strip mall containing an Acme Savon Pharmacy. The location is drab and mundane, but there is a historical marker that reveals something very different once stood there. Until it was torn down in 1968, this was the location of Moyaminsing Prison. Finished in 1835, it was a Gothic building with an Egyptian revival wing that served as debtor apartments. Edgar Allan Poe once described how during a visit to Philadelphia, he got drunk and attempted to kill himself. As a result, he was in prison there for a night but he is far from its most notorious resident. In the summer of 1895, a detective with the Philadelphia Police Force visited Moya Min Singh to interview one of the prisoners. The man had pled guilty several months earlier to insurance fraud. He had attempted to pass off a cadaver as a person on whom he had a life insurance policy. He was very friendly, charming even. He seemed to genuinely regret the crime that had landed him in Moya Mensing, and was eager to answer the detective's questions. He had an answer for every question, but though he sounded convincing, the detective, a veteran of over 20 years, knew that they were all lies. The easy smile and the delicate voice could not hide what lurked behind the man's eyes, not from the detective. And because of that, he feared the worst. There were children missing, and they had last been seen with this man. The meeting between these two men would raise the curtain on a series of dark revelations that would shake not only Chicago, but the entire country. It would mark the beginning of a journey that would lead to a terrible place, a house of horrors, hidden in plain sight, in the midst of an unsuspecting neighborhood, 
a place where fear, anger, pain, and perhaps something else, something worse, linger to this day. There is another architectural ghost lingering within a Chicago community. It literally hides under the feet of its residents. The post office, located at 611 West 63rd Street, could not appear to be more mundane. It was built in 1938 on the site of a building that had been torn down a few years earlier. It is that earlier building whose presence is still being felt. Some residents of the area avoid the post office entirely, even going so far as to cross the street if they have to pass it, while others are drawn there by the stories. John F., a reviewer on Yelp, wrote, This place is unusually cold. I've felt fingers on me and a woman's voice saying, Excuse me, as if to get by. But there was no one there. I just go there for the experience, also to get stamps on occasion. Others have heard things as well. Customers waiting in line or checking their post office box have described hearing someone crying. Employees have heard the sound of someone moaning and turned to find that they were alone in the room. At other times, they've heard the sound of a young girl humming or singing. On occasion, the sounds are even heard outside on the grassy area next to the building. After hearing a sound coming from a nearby hallway, one employee went to investigate. She found the hallway to be empty, except for some folding chairs leaning against the wall. She left, but returned again a moment later, when she heard the noise again. The hallway was still empty, but now the chairs were stacked one on top of the other. A few of the postal employees have seen a woman in strange clothing, both inside the building and in the yard outside, who is glimpsed only for a moment before she fades away. Author and tour guide Adam Selzer of the Chicago Unbelievable blog had an opportunity to visit the post office in 2012 with a television crew filming an episode of the TV show Haunted History for the History Channel. Selzer, an expert on the history and legends associated with the place, knew better than anyone that it was thought to have been the location of one of the most infamous buildings in Chicago. Though they were not interested in the post office itself, so much as what lay beneath it. The voices, so often heard in the building above, were thought to come from the basement below. While the apparition of a woman had been seen upstairs, postal employees who had ventured into the basement had described encountering a shadowy presence, one that sometimes took the form of a man. One employee even thought that she recognized him. The building that stood here before the post office was torn down in 1938. It was 51 years old at the time, having been constructed in 1887. According to Herbert Asbury's 1940 book, Jim of the Prairie, it was an imposing structure of three stories and a basement, with false battlements and wooden bay windows, covered by an iron sheet. It occupied an area of 50 by 162 feet and contained between 80 and 90 rooms. 
he added that there was nothing out of the ordinary on the first and third floors. The latter was cut up into small apartments that apparently were never occupied, and the former into larger rooms that were rented for business purposes. These businesses included a drugstore, a restaurant, and a jewelry store. An article in a 1902 edition of the Ohio Daily News once referred to it as Chicago's Ghost Castle. The writer of the article reported that at the time, one of the second floor rooms was occupied by a Mrs. Hines, who complained about the influence that seemed to pervade the building, especially at night. She said that she often had trouble sleeping and that nightmares had become a common occurrence. She said that though the details of her dreams varied, they all shared one common feature. They all ended the same way. Her apartment had a view of one of the building's most unusual features, a chute that went straight to the basement. She said that the nightmares that plagued her sleep always ended with her being thrown down the chute and tumbling into darkness. The influence of this building was not restricted to its tenants, nor was it a new occurrence. It had been known and felt for many years. On May 7, 1896, a crowd of people had gathered outside the building and waited and watched. They didn't know what they were looking for, but they had felt the influence of this place and they were drawn there nonetheless. A man had been executed that day, and they were there to see if his spirit would come home. Darkness fell as they waited long into the night, but nothing happened, at least nothing that they could discern, and the question was left for future generations to answer. Had the monster returned to his lair? Almost a year earlier, another crowd had gathered outside the building. At this point, the legend was still in its infancy, merely rumors and gossip. But it had drawn over a hundred people there, and they lay on the sidewalk around the outside of the building, attempting to look through the cracks in the bricks as the workers began excavating the cellar below. At one point, the work going on under the building undermined the integrity of the alley above, causing it to collapse, sending 50 people tumbling into a sinkhole. Fortunately, no one was seriously hurt. The stories that were whispered among the crowd of onlookers would soon be shouted by newsboys hawking papers on the street corners. They said that this was a building unlike any other, that it was designed for murder. They said that this building was home to things worse than murder. They said that the men digging in the cellar were looking for bodies. In Jim of the Prairie, Herbert Asbury described the interior of the building. The second floor was very strange. He said that it proved to be a veritable labyrinth with narrow winding passageways leading to hidden stairways cleverly concealed doors and rooms, blind hallways and trap doors, all so arranged as to facilitate escape and confuse pursuit. The second floor contained 36 rooms, one of which was an apartment belonging to the owner and designer of the building, 
His room had a trap door, under which was a staircase leading to a small room with two doors. One led out to the street, but the other opened on a chute that went directly down to the basement. While some of the rooms on the second floor were normal, according to Asbury, others were death traps, specifically designed to asphyxiate, poison, or even burn their occupants alive. He went on to describe the basement as the true heart of darkness in the building. In the corner of the huge underground room, beneath the chute which ran from the second floor, was a dissecting table and a case of gleaming surgical knives with sufficient evidence to indicate they had been frequently used. Under the table was a box containing skeletons, all of females. Built into one of the walls was the crematory, with a heavy iron gate to hold the fire. Buried in the floor was a huge vat of corrosive acid and two of quicklime, in any of which a body could have been devoured in a few hours. Scattered around the basement were several mysterious machines, the purpose of which was never learned, although it was believed that one, in shape somewhat similar to the rack of the medieval torturer, was the elasticity determinator, a device used to see how far a body could be stretched before it was torn apart. In 2012, when Selzer accompanied the crew from the History Channel, into the basement of the post office at 611 West 63rd Street. He had already discovered something that not many people knew. The post office was not actually on the site of the castle. It was just to the west of it. There was only a small area of overlap. They descended a stairwell and then turned into a long, dark hallway, which led into a series of rooms. There, they found a stepladder next to a hole in the wall. Just inside the hole was a tunnel. A tunnel that led north and then turned into the area once occupied by the castle. That tunnel was blocked by pipes, and Selzer was unable to follow it any further. He had heard that one room of the basement was thought to survive, sitting in the dark, just around the bend in the tunnel. He returned to the main area of the basement and began shooting video and recording audio. When he later studied the footage, he found a strange shadow that he couldn't account for. He began whispering the names of some of the people that were killed there. When he later listened to the recording, he could hear what sounded like a little girl singing. The exploration of the post office basement was only one of the more recent chapters in the search for answers that began 117 years earlier in an interrogation room at Moya Minsing Prison in Philadelphia, when a detective confronted the man who would come to be seen as his greatest foe. Published in the December 1893 issue of The Strand Magazine, The Sherlock Holmes story, The Final Problem, tells the story of the great detective's climactic confrontation with the villain that has come to be considered his arch-nemesis, Professor James Moriarty. Holmes's companion, Dr. John Watson, having been decoyed away by a false claim of a person in need of medical attention, 
returns to the Reichenbach Falls, where he left Holmes earlier. He finds Holmes has left him a note, saying that he has gone to face his enemy. There are two sets of footprints leading down a muddy path. At the end of the path, Watson finds clear indications that a great fight has occurred, and he is left to conclude that the great detective and his nemesis have both fallen into the gorge to their deaths. It is a dramatic finale that comes at the end of a series of lengthy investigations. It is, of course, fiction. In the real world, things often work very differently. Detective Frank Geyer of the Philadelphia Police Department was to find that he would confront the man who would come to be known as his nemesis, not at the conclusion of an investigation, but at the beginning. In the 1890s, when many were first enjoying the adventures of the detective Sherlock Holmes, Philadelphia had its own celebrity detective. And locally, his adventures were just as widely read, if not more so. Frank Geyer was a portly man who liked to eat. When he later wrote a book about what came to be known as the Peitzel case, he would document when and where he ate almost as thoroughly as his investigation. He had been a detective with the Philadelphia Police Department for 20 years in 1895. His involvement in the many cases that he investigated were chronicled in local newspapers, but his record was also not unblemished. In 1893, he was tried before a police court of inquiry for dereliction of duty. He was found guilty, but was not removed from his job. Over the course of his long career as a policeman and detective, Geyer had dealt with some difficult cases and had seen some horrific things. But nothing in his 20 years on the force would prepare him for the Peitzel case. Three children were missing, and it was his job to find them. Only one person knew where they were, the man sitting across the table from him. His real name was Herman Webster Mudgett. Despite the charming facade, Frank Geyer could see the devil that lurked inside him. Herman Webster Mudgett was 25 years old when he moved to Chicago in 1886. He had been born on May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. And as he grew up, came to be known as a strange child who was very intelligent but had trouble socializing with his peers. As a result, he was often bullied. He graduated high school at the age of 16 and took a teaching job. In 1882, he began attending classes at the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. After medical school, he briefly lived in Moores Fort, New York, but quickly moved on to Philadelphia, where he ultimately obtained a job working in a drugstore. He was, by all accounts, a pleasant person and a hard worker, but that was only his public persona. There was a darker side to Mudgett. While he attended medical school, he began what would be a lifelong practice of insurance fraud. He used cadavers from the school to file fake life insurance claims. He was also a bigamist. He married his first wife, Clara Lovering, in 1878, when he was 17 years old. The marriage proved to be contentious, and Mudgett was suspecting of abusing her. She left him in 1884. Even though the couple was separated, they remained married. 
despite a failed attempt by Mudgett to obtain a divorce. Despite still being married, he wed a woman named Myrta Belknap two years later. In 1894, he would marry a third wife, Georgiana Yoke. Had these been the extent of his crimes, it is likely he would have passed into history unremembered. But even then, he was suspected of having done something much worse. When he briefly lived in Moore's Fork, New York, he was suspected in the disappearance of a young boy. That was why he had so quickly moved on to Philadelphia. Because of his checkered past, when he moved to Chicago in 1886, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes. He took a job working at a drugstore at the southwest corner of South Wallace and West 63rd Street in the Inglewood neighborhood. Not long after, he purchased the business from the owners. The next year, he bought the empty lot across the street and began construction of the building that would come to be known as the castle. It would be here that the murders began in earnest. The first to die were Julia Smythe and her daughter Pearl. Julia's husband was an employee of Holmes, who not only worked in the castle, but lived there with his family. When her husband discovered that she was having an affair with Holmes, he left her. She and her daughter disappeared on Christmas Day in 1891. The next was Emily Sagrand, another employee in the building who began sleeping with Holmes. She disappeared a year after Julia and Pearl in December of 1892. Minnie Williams, a former actress from Texas who may have actually married Holmes, disappeared along with her sister Nanny in July of 1893. Two months later, on August 13, 1893, the castle caught fire, but the building was not severely damaged. Holmes had taken out multiple insurance policies on the building and was suspected of attempted arson. The insurance companies would push to have Holmes arrested, and so he fled Chicago heading to Texas, where he was caught stealing a horse and had to flee once again. In St. Louis, he was arrested for selling mortgage property and after being bailed out, quickly left. Eventually, he found his way back to Philadelphia and to his original scam, using a cadaver to file a fraudulent life insurance claim. He conspired with a man named Benjamin Peitzel to fake Peitzel's death for the insurance money. However, he betrayed him, murdering Peitzel and using his actual body to prove the claim. In a bizarre series of events, he convinced Peitzel's wife to allow him to take three of her five children supposedly to see their father. Holmes stayed on the move, keeping the Peitzel family close, but keeping the children separate from their mother and siblings. He moved through the Midwest and eventually to Canada before heading to Boston. It was there that he was finally arrested, having been tracked by Pinkerton detectives on an outstanding warrant for the horse theft in Texas. Rather than be sent back to Texas, he chose to return to Philadelphia faced the fraud charges. He pled guilty and was sent to Moyamensing Prison. As investigators looked further into the case, they became aware of Mrs. Peitzel's involvement. They also became aware that three of her children were missing. 
Holmes claimed that they had been taken to England by Minnie Williams. The investigators did not believe him. That was when Detective Frank Geyer was brought into the case. He was given the job of finding out what had happened to the three Peitzel children. Geyer retraced Holmes's movements through the Midwest and Canada. It was in Toronto, in the basement of a house, that Geyer found a large trunk that had been brought there by Holmes. Inside were the bodies of the two Peitzel girls, Alice and Nellie. Geyer continued his investigation, and in Indianapolis, in another house rented by Holmes, he found the remains of the Peitzel's son, Howard, hidden in a chimney. The discovery of the fate of the Peitzel children created a frenzy of attention, attention which quickly focused on the castle. And it was in the cellar under the building, as workers sweated through the hot summer days shoveling dirt, that even though he was not present, the investigation begun by Frank Geyer would continue to bear bitter fruit. Newspapers referred to him as the Bluebeard of Chicago, referencing the fairy tale character who married women and then took them to his castle where he inevitably tortured and murdered them, their remains buried in the cellar below. And the workers digging in the cellar beneath Holmes's castle would find bits of clothing and pieces of jewelry and skeletal remains. In October of 1895, the trial of Herman Mudgett more popularly known as H.H. H. Holmes, began in Philadelphia and lasted only six days. Holmes assumed the responsibility for his own defense and is said to have acquitted himself well. But it was too late. The monster had grown bigger than the man, and there was nothing that he could say to save himself. After deliberating for just over two hours, the jury returned a guilty verdict. On November 30th, he was sentenced to death. He spent his remaining days in Moyamensing Prison, where he wrote a memoir called Holmes's Own Story. He confessed to 27 murders, though only nine could be confirmed. But some believed that there were many more. Stories circulating through Chicago at the time said that during the World's Columbia Exposition, better known as the Chicago World Fair, which occurred in 1893, that Holmes had rented rooms to people who had traveled to the city to seek temporary employment with the exposition. The transient nature of these supposed victims, their lack of connection to the community, and the failure to find their remains, make their existence and their murders an enduring mystery. On May 7, 1896, Holmes was hanged on the grounds of Moya Mensing. The hanging was botched, and he took a long time to die. As he twitched at the end of a rope, a crowd gathered outside the now empty castle to see if the spirit of murder would return to fill it once again. Two priests visited Holmes before his execution but he refused to repent for his actions. His final statement on his life and the nature of his soul was to say, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer 
no more than a poet could help the inspiration to sing. I was born with the evil one, standing as my sponsor, beside the bed where I was ushered into the world, and he has been with me since. Even though Holmes was gone, his influence, as Mrs. Hines termed it, would linger in the building and trouble her dreams. Even after it was demolished in 1938, even after the building was gone, its influence would continue to linger. It is there today, in a post office on West 63rd Street, down a flight of stairs, at the back of a long, dark hallway, through a series of rooms where the right eyes will see strange shadows sliding across the walls, and the right ears will hear the songs of a little girl lost and alone for many years. There is a hole in a wall and a long tunnel that leads to where we do not know, possibly to a room, the last remnant of a house consecrated to murder, a room enveloped in darkness in which something stirs and refuses to rest, a room with the devil inside. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written and performed by Mike Brown. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Michael Dalbello at Charleston Sound Studio. For more information on Pleasing Terrors, please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at pleasingtears.com. Thank you for listening.